0: Good morning, Marsha. It's lovely to see you in Melbourne. Your book, The Man Without a Face, makes Vladimir Putin and his unchallenged rise to power seem like some kind of bizarre miracle, a rather small bully boy finding himself only when he joins the KGB. Why was that um, experience so formative and why was he important enough to the KGB for them to nurture him?
1: I wouldn't call it a miracle. I'd call it an accident. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but um, uh, I don't actually think he was important enough for them to nurture him. I mean, uh, the KGB in its late stages, which is when he was serving there, uh, starting in the late 1970s and ending in the late 1980s, mm. officially. Uh, I mean, the KGB officially uh, ended in 1991. The Soviet KGB. It was a, a an overstuffed organization, uh, and a part of Its downfall was the fact that it couldn't process all the information that it was collecting and all the useless information that it was collecting. And Putin was really one of the people collecting that useless information that never went anywhere except into his reports.
0: You write that in the early 90s, Putin loved the Soviet Union and loved the KGB. So was he and is he what we call an unreconstructed Marxist-Leninist or opposition to what? you call a re-Sovietization of Russia?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure what that has to do with Marxism and Leninism. I think he knows very little of Marxist theory, uh, if any. Uh, but um, if, we, if we set that aside, uh, yes, he is a Soviet nostalgia monger. That is very much Uh, what's behind his popularity and that is very much what's been driving him or what was driving him until a couple of years ago. I mean, I think there was a fundamental change that occurred about two and a half years ago. He went from being a nostalgic post-ideological president to an ideological president. Mm. And he is very much a forward-looking politician at this point, which is not good news for the rest of the world. we just touch a moment on
0: that popularity, which I think we all kind of are aware of but find it very hard to understand. And to ask, you know, where does it exist, this great popularity, is it really nationwide? Is We read about dissent mm-hmm. taking place mainly in, say, Moscow and perhaps major cities.
1: That's a total misconception. You know, when there was dissent, when there were mass protests in Russia uh, in 2011, 2012, those, uh, at the height of the, of the protests, they were taking place um, simultaneously in 99 different Russian cities and towns. So um, that's as broad-based a culture as Russia has ever seen. Uh, so it's at all. I mean, there's so, there's so many misconceptions out there. So many media tropes that uh, they just have nothing to do with reality. Uh, one is that the other is oh, it's urban protest. Well, yes, it's urban protest. Russia is an urban country. Eighty percent of Russians live in urban, uh, you know, in cities and towns. Of course, it's an urban protest. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the people who live in villages live in, um, you know, in 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 villages that have a half dozen or so houses. Not a lot of protest activity there. Sure. Yes, yeah. so um, so as far as uh, when dissent was vocal, which was a very brief period, it was broad-based, mm. it was geographically varied, and it was it cut completely across class lines. And we actually had have hard numbers on on, on that. Uh, which you know Western journalists would really do well to study rather than just parrot the Kremlin's line about the disaffected uh, urbanites, mm-hmm. um, uh, which you know which came directly from the Kremlin. Um, so you know the eighty six percent the frightening eighty six percent support for the war in Ukraine and for Putin in the war in Ukraine, how true is that? Well, that's very true. But it is also it's it's as true as any other measure of public opinion in an authoritarian country has ever been, which is to say it's incredibly fickle. Mm. It's true today, it may not be true tomorrow.
0: But that also means, doesn't it, that it's very difficult to harness it in any way for either side to take it into their plans, the dissenters or the regime. Right,
1: but the dissenters, I mean, it's a misconception to think that uh, the, the dissenters are aside. side. Yes, OK. Uh, it implies all sorts of things that, that don't exist. Uh, As for the regime, uh, you're right. I mean, the regime, if the regime wanted to harness the sort of people power, that would be very difficult. The regime has no need for it.
0: Yes, because, um, well, at least in part, you say that when Putin became president for the first time in 2000, he dismantled democracy by strengthening the structures of
1: vertical power. So could you give some sort of examples just to... I never said that he strengthened the, f- the structures of vertical power. That's what other journalists have said, and I completely disagree with that. No, I mean, what Putin did do is he dismantled the institutions of democracy. Mm. He uh, he dismantled the electoral system, which has had been constructed in the 1990s, and he engineered the state takeover of uh, all electronic media. Mm. So. I would even say more to your previous question about harnessing the sort of popular support. Not only does he have no need of it, he has no mechanisms for doing that. Because you would need those same mechanisms of, of democracy and media in, to even be able to reach out to the people. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a two-way street, and there's no traffic on there. I mean, mm. that, that street has been shut off for 15 years. Mm.
0: You write that the Moscow Theatre Hostage Crisis of 2002... Was a deliberate FSI exercise designed to show that Russia would never allow an independent Chechnya? Does that kind of intransigence have any bearing on the current situation in Ukraine?
1: No, let's untangle that because uh, uh, the the th- I, I mean I think the theater hostage crisis was uh, an absolutely abhorrent event, and uh, no, it wasn't engineered by the secret services, no. although. Uh, I think as often as you know, more often than not, in fact, and not just in Russia, but all over the world, uh, terrorist organizations are groups that were at some point or another empowered and/or funded and/or armed by the secret services and then went rogue. I mean, that's the most common situation we see um, everywhere in the world. I think that's uh, that's true of the uh, of the group that that engineered the the hostage taking at the at the theater in Moscow in 2002. Uh, There was the even more horrifying, uh, if you can even compare these things, school siege in Beslan uh, two years later, which I think that uh, the Secret Services ensured was as bloody and terrifying as anything else. Neither of those things really has anything to do with Chechnya at at that point. At that point, it had been nearly 10 years since Russia quashed the independence movement in Chechnya. Uh, so um, so no. I mean, you know, I wouldn't put those t- things together. I also wouldn't put uh, Ukraine and Chechnya in the same category. Uh, I mean, broadly speaking, we see some of the same traits. We see Moscow's unwillingness mm-hmm. to enter a post-imperial uh, era we see Moscow using very much the same tactics. And in this sense, it's very it would be very useful for people to go back and study the history of the war in Chechnya, uh, which you know we're used to thinking, those of us who think about it, we're used to thinking of the start of the war in Chechnya as being the as being New Year's Eve in 1994, 90, 1995. But in fact, uh, as much as six months before that, there were unmarked Russian planes flying over Chechen um, territory. Okay. Uh, <laughs> firing rounds at Chechen villages and dropping at the occasional bomb. Mm. And Moscow was saying, oh, that's not Russian planes, mm. that's Azeri planes. You know, why would Azerbaijan drop planes on Chechnya? There's no reason for Azerbaijan to be dropping bombs on Chechnya. Mm. Then, uh, you know, in the fall of 1994, Russia tried to stage a coup in, uh, in Grozny by sending uh, tanks uh, and armored personnel vehicles full of Russian Russian Marines who had uh, who had fake documents on them, who claimed to be Chechens uh, trying to overthrow Dzhokhar uh, uh, Dodayev, then the leader of Chechnya. When they were arrested, they were exposed as Russian Marines, <laughs> and uh, their documents were broadcast on Russian television. We're seeing the exact same thing happen now. We're seeing people entering Ukraine. Uh, we're seeing Putin saying that these are not Russian mm-hmm. Marines; it's they're using Marines again, um, but in fact they are Russian Marines. Uh, and 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 again, people, you know, Russia is sending its uh, uh, its soldiers to die in battle without even giving them the honor of acknowledging mm. that they died carrying out the orders of the Russian military. So in that sense, you know, there are some similarities, and uh, and it actually is useful for deciphering. Uh, the signals that Russia is sending out. Other than that, I don't think it's a very useful parallel, because uh, the war that Russia is fighting now is not uh, is, is nothing like the war that was fighting to, um, you know, 15 years ago in Chechnya. 15 years ago in Chechnya, it was trying to ensure that no other Russian region would think about independence, because the, the cost would be so high. Uh, that's part of what the message that Russia is sending now, but uh, the more important message is that Russia is fighting an all-out war against the West. And this is what I mentioned earlier about Putin's transformation from a post-ideological president into an ideological president. He now thinks he's on a historic mission, a civilizational mission, that uh, Russia is the country that will uh, stand up for traditional values in the world, Mm. that will protect the so-called traditional values civilization, Mm -hmm. or what they also call the Russian world, Mm. um, that will stand up against what they consider to be the false concept of universal human rights. uh, And, you know, that's that's a whole different story
0: well yes um i mean i seem to be good at asking you questions to which you say no no it's not like that (laughs) but still i'm going to ask this one do you think that the suggestion that democracy which sometimes we describe as the least worst system uh, available is at heart foreign to traditional russian thinking in other words it it seemed to me that after 1989, that really democracy was kind of imposed like one of those overlays on a typewriter, you know, where you have to have this, the Western characters on a, on a Cyrillic typewriter. But it's really not as simple as that.
1: Democracy is foreign to any kind of traditional thinking. Mm-hmm. Democracy uh, does not, you know, do well with traditional values, uh, and uh, democracy is a system that, one it works. You know, uh, values minorities and protects the minority against the majority. Mm. That is not the way traditional societies work. So in that sense, there's no difference between Russia and any other country that doesn't have a democratic past. That applies to all countries, with the exception of the New World: the United States, Australia, and New Zealand. That's it. Those are the only countries that started out as democracies. Oh, I see with a, with a you know, every the other country in the world uh, has had
0: to develop it if they can.
1: Uh, well, has has had a traditional uh, form of government of some mm. sort. You yes. know, uh, developing yeah. over time to develop a democracy. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I really object to this idea that there is something something particular to the Russian psyche. Uh, Russia is like other traditional societies. It, uh, uh, if it is to become a democracy, it has to overcome a lot of uh, cultural resistance. That doesn't make it special. I think there are other things that make Russia special. Um, The history of 70 years of totalitarianism. That is different from any other place in the world. Modern totalitarianism uh, hasn't existed anywhere else for that long. And I think that the trauma inflicted by that is, is, is very special. It's not culturally special.
0: Before he was arrested and imprisoned, the former oligarch, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, was doing a great deal to help build civil society in Russia. But it seemed to me that you were suggesting that his punishment was due at least in part to what you've called as a whole chapter heading, Putin's insatiable greed. Now, is this greed to do with Hodor then reputation as the richest man in the world, or is it about something more than money?
1: Um, It's both. I mean, it's... um, I think that his initial impulse to uh, to sort of shut Khodorkovsky down and uh, and put him in jail had to do with Khodorkovsky's insubordination. Yes. Um, the idea that an, uh, you know a rich man, uh, a billionaire, an oligarch, should be subordinated to the president of the country uh, is something that seems obvious to Putin. And, and something that uh, that seems just as obviously wrong to Khodorkovsky. Uh, so when Putin came into office, he uh, he demanded that the oligarchs sort of swear their loyalty, yeah. or else they would have to leave the country, and forfeit their assets. Khodorkovsky refused to either leave the country, or uh, swear his loyalty. Therefore, he had to go to jail. He also had an oil empire, uh, which Putin couldn't just let stand. So. But I think the greed, in this sense, it uh, was secondary, I mean, it, it sort of, uh, at least in chronologically, it followed in the footsteps of the arrest. But it's so integral to who Putin is, and it's at this point it's so integral to the system that he has created, uh, that there's no—one you know, can't exist without the other. He has to strip everybody of their assets. That's sort of part of what he does, and part of what his power rests on.
0: Mm. But then. Presumably, if you become someone who um, owns, you um, cross oil as it were, then you, that's a position of power irrespective of the income generated.
1: Sure. The way that he has dealt with, uh, with that with other rich men in Russia is by sort of subjugating them. They have to share their assets <laughs> uh, and they have, to, they have to channel money and, uh, into things that, uh, that Putin believes are right. Um, they, they have to constantly share their power. They cannot exercise it mm. unchecked.
0: Mm. Um, I would like to bring in something about the next book, uh, Words, Words Will Break Cement, that is the subtitle, The Passion of Pussy Riot, because it gives us uh, a bit more about later Russia, post-2011. At the close of the trial, the girls, the three girls who were arrested for defiling both the Cathedral of Christ the Saviour and, apparently, the President, each separately made a final statement. And each of those statements threw a sort of slightly different individual light on uh, the situation of Russia today. Um, And if I can just radically summarise that, Nadja talked more about coercion and the resulting civic passivity, about the manipulation of public opinion and the state control of the media. Maurya... Marsha, the travesties of justice and law in the actual trial and then Katerina, the girl whose lawyer actually got her off spends some time it's a long speech, but she does spend some time discussing the relation between the authorities and the Russian Orthodox Church uh, which she claims Putin has annexed for his own ends how could he annex the um, power and influence of the Russian Orthodox Church for his own ends
1: yeah, uh well, uh, that's actually a small place where I disagree with with uh, with Katarina's statement. And first of all, I, I, I want to just dwell on those statements for a second. I think they're incredible documents, uh, and part of you know what they're incredible documents of is just the strength of these young women. Who uh, these these speeches were given after a nine-day grueling trial, just absolutely awful. Uh, in part, just because of the physical conditions in which these women were kept, they were—they uh, uh, got about two hours of sleep a night. They were c- kept in these unventilated spaces. They were barely hydrated, because they knew they wouldn't be able to go to the bathroom from the courtroom, so they were careful about about drinking or eating any, any liquids. I mean, they were just—and um, this is all in a non-air-conditioned um, room uh, in in the summer in Moscow in August, which which is pretty warm. So uh, they would have been exhausted and, and depleted, and yet they wrote these three eloquent statements that together do summarize uh, the, the, the current state of Russian society. Now in terms of the relationship between church and state um, in, in Russia, uh, in a way it's, um, it's misleading to even say the relationship between church and state because it's a little bit like saying the relationship between the right hand and the left hand. They grow out of the same place, they are part of the same body. Um, The right hand cannot annex the left hand for its own purposes, they are ruled by the same brain. That's traditionally how the Russian Orthodox Church has, has functioned. And uh, you know, that's how the Russian Church Orthodox Church was founded. It was founded as part of the Russian state. Yeah. It, was, state it served at the pleasure of the Tsar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and during the Soviet period, uh, we all know very well that the Bolsheviks uh, were not great fans of religion. What we don't know usually is that um, while they destroyed much of the, uh, many of the religious institutions, and frowned greatly on the practice of religion, they kept a little bit of the church still functioning, and a few synagogues and a few mosques, and those still continued to serve at the pleasure of the state, and the clergy that was allowed to, to continue to function were all KGB agents. Uh, so then the Soviet Union ended, the church came into its own again, and it came into, into its own again as part of the state structure. Not yet.
0: Tolokornikova also made a speech outside the court in Mordovia, uh, in which she spoke about her stylistic and aesthetic disagreement with the regime, which is really fascinating. And I'd like you to explain why uh, aesthetic res- resistance is so important to Nadia more than any complaint about shocking conditions and deprivation of sleep and and she's she really has a vision.
1: It seems to me. Um, well, okay. First of all, that wasn't a church outside the court. It was a church in court. Nobody would have led her outside the court. She was in prison. Uh, she was an inmate at the time. So she was. Um, she. It was um, during a hearing at the Supreme Court of Mordovia. Mordovia is the part of Russia where she was serving her sentence, uh, and she. It was one of her many uh, appeals to have her sentence commuted. Uh, one of her many failed appeals to to have her sentence commuted. So it was a, it was a speech that, that she gave uh, while in court. It was one of her few opportunities, or actually, you know, if you think about it, there the, the, weren't so few, um, while she was in prison to make a public statement. Uh, both she and, and, and Masha, the other uh, member of Pussy Riot who ended up serving the two-year sentence, uh, continued to file these uh, uh, complaints and appeals in order to be able, to make public statements. Mm-hmm. Uh, they knew they weren't going to have their sentences commuted. They knew they weren't going to be paroled, uh, but they were going to be able to speak to the public and speak to the court um, and speak to the system. They, they chose different uh, ways of approaching uh, that. Uh, Masha uh, sort of had an ongoing performance in which, uh, which was geared very much every time at demonstrating how illegitimate the court was. Mm-hmm. So she would make a series of motions each of which was denied. And then she would say, okay, this is a travesty of justice. I'm f- refusing to participate. Mm-hmm. And there was, was a brilliant scene at one point when she turned her back to the camera. She, was, um, she wasn't she was allowed to be in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. was in a cell, speaking by video uplink to mm-hmm. the courtroom. And so at one point she said, I'm refusing to, to, to participate in this. And she turned her back to the courtroom, uh, to the camera. And she has this amazing hair. She had this uh, long flowing red hair. And it just like completely covered the screen, this 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 hair. and And the court technician didn't know what to do. So for about two minutes we were staring at this uh, screen of of um, uh, of of Masha's luxurious hair. It was beautiful. So um, Nadia chose a different tack. she She, uh, she focused not on the uh, on the legitimate position of the court, but on the um, on the nature of her protest. Hmm. So uh, I wouldn't say it was more important than the conditions of prisoners. In fact, you know, she has devoted herself fully to a prisoner's rights movement since she was uh, released from prison last December. But uh, at the time she was, she was speaking about aesthetic resistance. Um, the statement that she made actually goes back, it's, it's a reference to um, an old a uh, uh, dissonant statement made by Andrei Sinyavsky, yes. uh, the, 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 um, uh, the first writer to yes. be imprisoned uh, for publishing his work abroad, uh, in uh, it was 1964, yes. and, um, and he said, "My differences with the Soviet regime are aesthetic in nature," yes. and what he meant by that is that he wasn't going to be entering into political debate. With a regime that uh, that repressed expression as such, exactly. Uh, and I think that what Nadia was saying is, is is similar in that um, the the sort of the debasement, the humiliation, that is such an integral instrument of control in the Putin regime, mm-hmm. uh, is much more basic than politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it goes to, it, it goes to denying humanity. Uh, and, and denying any kind of expression and any kind of individuality. And you have to start by affirming humanity and, 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 uh, and affirming aesthetics, and, tha- and then you can have a conversation. Mm. But we're not even near having a political debate yet. So
0: why, in your opinion, did Putin release Nadia and Masha early, not to mention other people like uh, Hodokovsky and Navalny?
1: Um, it's, it's very simple. I mean, it was... Um, it was just be, uh, it was in december uh, just before the sochi olympic games and uh the 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 games were to start in february and it was becoming clear that nobody was coming to the party yeah uh, this was putin's personal project mm. he had personally gone to guatemala city uh, to lobby to for russia to be given the the olympics it was very important for him to be back in the office of president when the olympics uh, happened and uh, it's very important for him to be able to take pictures with the guys. And then the guys, one after another, started backing out. You know, the, 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 what finally broke the camel's back was uh, President Obama's uh, delegation, which didn't include a single highly placed official. Mm-hmm. Uh, the highest placed official there was uh, the, an assistant secretary of state. Uh, and uh, you know, not a photo op for Putin. And Putin panicked. And he thought maybe he could burnish his human rights image a little bit by releasing the high-profile prisoners. At the very same time that Nadia and Masha and Kondrakowski were being released, Mm. people were going to jail. But they were less high-profile.
0: Yes. But that does seem to... um, What you've said about um, his reaction to people who get global coverage uh, seems to... does back up that what Nadia... I think it's written, or no, <laughs> I interpret it as saying that the global outrage that uh, is expressed in social media does call Putin to feel afraid, and that's in inverted commas too, uh, <laughs> so I don't does think so, it so at all, no, no. I mean, what I
1: just said is that uh, he didn't like the fact that um, the leaders of the Western world were not coming to his party, that has nothing to do with social media and the global uh, outrage on the level of, of the public. That he, you know, he couldn't care less about that.
0: Well, does it have any, does it have any kind of sway amongst ordinary people in Russia?
1: Um, okay, so social media is something that amplifies and speeds up things that exist offline. Doesn't it's not an entity in itself in the sense that it doesn't do anything that isn't already being done offline, right? The connections between people in Russia uh, have been largely destroyed by both 70 years of Soviet rule and then the 15 years of Putin's rule. Social media do not create connections that don't exist offline.
0: No, I'm sure it doesn't, but it uh, gives voice, it gives a a forum for exchange. It lets people talk to themselves, Mm, yes,
1: but I mean to themselves and to others who agree with them and with whom they would have connections offline. It doesn't create things that don't exist offline. That's a really important thing to understand about social media. In a country that has healthy connections among people in society, that has a healthy functioning uh, offline media or you know traditional media, it creates ways for information to bubble up and trickle down. In a country where those connections have been destroyed, none of that happens.
0: But does it give access to opinions outside Russia?
1: Uh, to those who would seek them. Yeah. But that's a key uh, distinction. You have to. You, you don't find you things have on social. Mea- you have, don't find things on social media mm. that you don't know about. You have to know that you want to uh, to know about this thing or this person's opinion or this newspaper's take on things.
0: Yes, and surely that must be happening. People want alternatives.
1: A very small minority of people does. A very small minority.
0: There's a book called. Fragile state by Ben Judah, who argues that um, the system in Russia under Putin now is essentially doomed. Do you have a view on this?
1: Every system is eventually doomed. <laughs> <Depends> <laughs> on
0: how long will uh, lasts
1: Right, exactly. Uh, I mean, I think that um, I think that Putin is in his endgame. Right, He's entered uh, sort of the terminal stage uh, of, of of perpetual escalation. That can only ultimately lead to destruction. How long will that take? I don't know. I mean, is he going to be able to um, carry on this uh, slow war uh, and pull in more and more of the neighboring countries over the course of years? That's entirely possible. Uh, will it be over in a few months? I kind of doubt it. Uh, but
0: supposing everything goes the way he wants it to, what's he going to do about an air? What would he do about an air? His
1: planning horizon is about six weeks. He, he doesn't think about an air. I mean, and I say six weeks for a reason, because it was very interesting. You know, I always knew he didn't have much of a planning horizon. It was very interesting to see what was happening in advance of the Sochi Olympics, because the entire... International human rights establishment expected that Russia would clean up its its act in terms of human rights in the lead up to the uh, to the to the Olympics. That's what other countries uh, have done, such as China. You know, China abolished the death penalty before the Olympics and then you know brought it right back as soon as the games were over. Um, And Russia wasn't doing any of that. I mean, Russia you know is as close to the Olympics as in September, um, before the February, Russia uh, kidnapped. Uh, 30 citizens of 18 different countries in international waters and threw them in jail uh, by hijacking a Greenpeace Greenpeace. ship. So uh, what was going on? Did Russia not care? No, it's a measure of the planning horizon. So Putin finally swung into action and released those 30 people and Mikhail Khodorkovsky and Masha of Pussy Riot Mm -hmm. six weeks before the Olympics. That is an accurate measure of his planning horizon.
0: You're at the moment in an Australian city that 25 years ago formalized sister city relations with St. Petersburg. This has facilitated cultural ties between the cities, like the uh, educational exchanges for school children. Is there any reason to worry that such apolitical activities can be misconstrued as pro-regime propaganda?
1: I don't think there's such a thing as apolitical activities, especially in a state that... uh, is authoritarian edging toward a a version, a hybrid version of totalitarianism. Everything that Russia does is political. Every emissary it sends out into the world is intentional, and that goes for people who come from St. Petersburg to Melbourne. But I don't think
0: that's how people going from Melbourne to St. Petersburg feel.
1: Well, I think that um, this is, I mean, this is something that that we've seen before. We saw this during so-called c- citizen diplomacy, diplomacy days in the Soviet period, uh, you know, it's Stings' fa- famous lo- line: "You know, Russia, the Russians love their children too." Uh, I think it's a very well-intentioned, very understandable impulse to say, "Let's not dehumanize the enemy," uh, and I completely agree with the impulse uh, and 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 with the resistance to dehumanizing. What I disagree with is this transference of a Western understanding of, of the relationship between the society and its, and its regime onto a totalitarian country. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, the Russians love their children too, but they're completely helpless to protect them from the regime. And that's a very, very different situation. And I think that um, th- that you know, there's, a, there's a huge moral question uh, that faces everybody who goes to Russia. Um, So, you know, my my response certainly when people have asked me more directly, you know, should I boycott the cultural events to which I'm invited or should I go and use the opportunity to do something, Uh, you know, my response is, well, basically it doesn't matter. Just make it count. If you boycott it, make sure that everybody knows why you're boycotting. If you just back out of a gig, nobody's going to know. Uh, but let the, the organizers know that the reason you're not coming uh, is, is, is because their regime is waging war on its own people, waging war in Ukraine, uh, you know, w- uh, violating international law. If you do go, make that count. Mm. You know, uh, make public statements. Uh, you are much safer than anybody who's a citizen of Russia. You know, do not practice citizen diplomacy by talking to people in their kitchens. That's useless. Mm. Be public. But when people go and say this is apolitical activity and therefore I'm a force for good, no. If you're not uh, making your time count, then you're a force for bad.